My text for this afternoon is uh, taken from 1 Peter chapter 4, the first part of verse 7, but uh, I'll read uh, a few verses uh, around that for uh, context, beginning at verse 1, chapter 4, 1 Peter, my previous reading was 2 Peter, so now this is 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. And uh, reading uh, a little bit into that chapter. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully, administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And again, the words of our text, the end of all things is near. From time to time, I have seen in newspapers and in secular magazines a cartoon. It varies somewhat from one place to another, but the, the general picture that you see in this cartoon is of a man dressed in a long robe with a long, untrimmed beard, and he's standing on a street corner of a modern city, people passing by, ignoring him, and he's carrying a placard, a sign that says, Repent, the end is near. It's a cartoon by which the world mocks religious fanatics who prophesy that the end is near. When the modern world hears these words of our text, the end of all things is near, they, in keeping with what uh, Peter wrote in his second epistle, they laugh and they scoff and they mock at the idea that uh, things will not go on forever the way they have always go on. Well, you and I may not laugh and scoff and mock at Peter, but nonetheless, we can't help but wonder, what in the world is he talking about? What does that mean when he says the end is near? In 1 Peter, he writes those words, but then in 2 Peter, that chapter that I read to you from his second epistle, it almost sounds like he's a bit schizophrenic because there, he gives the impression that the end is not at all near. 
that with the day, Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day, and the Lord is not slow, as some count slowness, but he's being patient, and uh, he doesn't want anyone to uh, fail to come to repentance, and so it appears as if he's making excuses for why this may take a long time. God counts time differently than we do, and it's as if he changed his tune, that he's giving a, a different kind of prophecy now. Is Peter some early version of Harold Camping? I don't know if you're familiar with Harold Camping from Anaheim, California. He's in his 90s now, and he has prophesied three dates for the end of the world, and all three dates have come and gone. Finally, he's apologized for his uh, predicting uh, the end of the world uh, unsuccessfully three times, although he hasn't apologized for many of his other heretical teachings. But uh, we wonder, is, is Peter changed his tune? Has he come up with a different date now? What, what is this all about? Well, we need to understand that Peter got his eschatology from Jesus. Eschatology is a fancy word for the study of end times and end things and uh, the end of the world and so forth. And if we want to understand the apostles' teaching on end, end time matters, we have to first understand Jesus' teaching. And I, I'd appreciate it if you would look in your Bibles at Jesus' classical text on end time writings, which is Matthew 24. It's known as the Olivet Discourse. And uh, I want to point out some things uh, from the Olivet Discourse that will help us to understand Peter's eschatology, his end time thinking. And the first thing that I would point out about Matthew 24 is what comes just before it, beginning in verse 35 of the, of the previous chapter, Matthew 23, verse 35, where Jesus has been pronouncing woes on the uh, Jews, uh, the, the scribes and the Pharisees and so forth who have rejected his teaching. And he says in Matthew 23, verse 35, and so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. Jesus is saying something terrible is going to happen to this generation. The guilt of all those who have slain the prophets from the time of Abel, Cain's brother, from the very big dawn of human history, down through the Old Testament, all the prophets who have been rejected and killed, their blood will fall on this generation. Now that may seem unfair, but not really, because this generation that Jesus is speaking to have rejected him. And every prophet who ever spoke, spoke by the spirit of Jesus Christ, who was within them. Christ, uh, the, the prophets spoke by the spirit of Christ. Christ was speaking through the prophets. And so to reject the prophets is to reject Christ. If you reject Christ, you've rejected the prophets. They speak by the same voice. They speak the same message. They reject one is as equivalent of rejecting the other. And therefore, it is perfectly fitting and just that this generation that has rejected Jesus Christ in the flesh should be held accountable for the rejection of all the prophets who have spoken by the Spirit of Christ. But he's saying something terrible is going to happen to this generation because you have rejected. Now, in the beginning of chapter 24, Jesus is walking through Jerusalem. 
And it says they left the temple, and as they were walking his way, uh, his disciples came up to him and called his attention to the buildings. And in verse 2 it says, Do you see these, all these things? He asked. I tell you, not one stone will be left on another. Everything will be thrown down. The temple is going to be destroyed. He's just said at the end of chapter 23, something terrible is going to happen to this generation. And now he tells his disciples, the temple is going to be destroyed. And that gets the disciples thinking. And so uh, as they leave and go on to the Mount of Olives, the disciples come to him with a question. And they say, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? And the word for coming there is the word parousia. Uh, it's uh, an English word. It's not one that we hear very often. Uh, well, first of all, it is a Greek word, but it is a Greek word that has been transliterated into the English language so that you can find it in most English language dictionaries. It's uh, the word parousia means uh, not just coming, but the, the appearance. Uh, when uh, you make an appearance, when you arrive and make an appearance, uh, that's a parousia. And uh, there's one place where the Apostle Paul speaks of his parousia, meaning I'm going to come to a certain place and appear there. Uh, no, nothing special about it. It can be used to describe anybody appearing at any location. And uh, they, they want to know, when will, the, when will these things that you're talking about, this terrible judgment that's going to fall on this generation, the destruction of the temple, and, and your parousia? And I believe that they asked this question thinking, thinking that, these things are going to happen at the same time, that they are a, a single event, the end of the age, the appearing of Christ, and the destruction of the, the Jews. They're all going to happen all at once. But if you examine carefully this chapter, you'll see that it's structured in such a way that Jesus answers their question by saying there's really going to be two things that are going to happen, and they aren't going to happen at the same time. He begins in verse 4 to tell them to watch out for false Christs and uh, for uh, terrible times that are ahead where they're going to be persecuted severely, where there's going to be a great tribulation, where there will be uh, dramatic signs that are described using uh, language from the Old Testament. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Um, that same language is used to describe the destruction of Babylon, uh, which it was not, uh, uh, it didn't bring about the end of the actual moon or the actual sun, but uh, ever since Christ or God at creation gave the heavenly bodies to govern the day and to govern the night, that's the language of uh, Genesis 1 and 2, uh, that these heavenly bodies govern, uh, sun and moon have been symbols of of rulers, and uh, the bringing down of rulers is poetically described in scripture as the, the bringing down of the sun and the moon. And uh, so uh, Jesus is using that language saying there's going to be cataclysmic events taking place, great persecutions, and uh, it's all going to happen, he says, uh, in this generation. I tell you, he says in verse 34, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. But then in verse 36, he begins, but concerning that day, about that day, uh, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son of Man, but only the Father know when it's going to happen. 
Uh, and that's how it will be at the coming, verse 39, that's how it will be at the coming of the parousia of the Son of Man. In other words, he's telling, uh, let me backtrack a minute here, uh, in the, uh, uh, between verses 4 and 35, he gives them things to look for, signs of things that are going to happen. And he tells them that when you see these hap things happening, that uh, you should uh, flee to the hills, you should get out of here, uh, because uh, uh, this uh, great tribulation is coming, and uh, you must uh, uh, get out of the way. Uh, we know that uh, in A.D. 70, these prophecies were fulfilled in that generation, and uh, the uh, uh, secular uh, historian Josephus, well, he was Jewish, he wasn't Christian, but uh, he wrote a history of this time, and he said that when uh, the Roman armies uh, surrounded Jerusalem, and broke down the wall and destroyed the temple and killed over a million and a half people who were in the city at that time, many of them refugees from the advancing Roman army. They had fled to Jerusalem thinking they'd be safe there, but uh, they weren't. Uh, he said when, uh, Josephus says, when that happened, not one Christian was uh, in Jerusalem because they had seen the signs that Jesus warned about. Uh, verse 32 says, now learn the lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs are tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you all see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. And it's going to happen in this generation. And so the Christians remember Jesus' words. They saw the signs and they fled that great tribulation and that great judgment that fell on Jerusalem that involved the destruction of the temple and the killing of a million and a half Jews. But now he says in verse 39, but concerning my parousia, concerning my parousia, my appearing at the end of the world, nobody knows when that's going to happen. And not only does nobody know when that's going to happen, not even do I know when that's going to happen, not even do the angels in heaven know when that's going to happen, but he goes on to tell three parables. And all three parables are designed to give the impression that the parousia of Jesus is going to be seemingly delayed a long time off. He tells uh, about uh, the wise and uh, faithful servant in uh, Matthew 24, verse 45, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master put in charge of the servant's household and so forth. And um, in verse 48 it says, but suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away a long time. He's telling, Jesus is telling a parable about a master and the master stays away a long time. In chapter 25 he tells the parable of the ten virgins. And in Matthew 25 verse 5 it says, the bridegroom was a long time in coming. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. Now he's introduced his parousia in Matthew 24 verse 39 and then starts telling these parables and the parables include the element of, a, of the passage of a long time. Again in Matthew 25 verse 14 he tells the parable of the talents and in the middle of the parable of the talents is uh, verse 19 of chapter 25. After a long time the master of the servants returned and settled accounts with them. Well. This is a very brief overview of, of the Olivet Discourse. And what it boils down to is that Jesus says twice, once at the end of Matthew 23 and once in the middle of 24, that something terrible is going to happen in the generation of the apostles. But regarding his parousia, 
he tells them that's going to be a long time, a long time coming. Nobody knows when it's going to come. It's going to come like a thief. Now, in 2 Peter, 2 Peter, which is the passage I read to you first, Peter says, scoffers will come and say, where is the promise of his coming? And the word there again is parousia. Where is the promise of his parousia? And in 2 Peter, Peter tells us that with the Lord, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. It's going to come like a thief. Nobody knows when it is. But the judgment that fell on Jerusalem happened in their generation. And there were signs given to warn the Christians when it was about to happen so that they would not be caught up in the judgment that would fall on the unbelievers for their unbelief and for their rejection of Christ and, and all the prophets who had spoken by Christ. So there's two events. They ask the question, when will these things be, the things you've just talked about, the, destruction, the, the judgment falling on the unbeliever, unbelieving generation and, and the destruction of the tent, when will this be and when will your parousia be? Thinking that these things are going to happen together and Jesus separates them. Jesus separates them. There's one event that's going to happen in their generation and one event that's going to seemingly be a long time coming. Now it's important for us to understand that Jesus taught that in, in the Olivet Discourse in that passage because that is what undergirds Peter's remarks. When he says, the end of all things is near, He's talking about the near event, the near event that Jesus prophesied, that Jesus said would happen in this generation. Twice he said it would happen in this generation. Now, some people say, well, why would, why would Peter call the destruction of Jerusalem the end? When you and I hear the word end, we think, well, he must be talking about the end of the world. Isn't that what end means? It means the, the termination, the, 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 the stopping point where everything after that is different, completely different. Well, the word end can mean that, but there was an end prophesied to Babylon. Babylon was used of God to punish Israel, but then because they punished Israel in excess and uh, were perpetrated great evils against uh, God's people, uh, an end came upon them. And, and the, the Bible prophesies that uh, for, for Babylon, the end came and, and that city has never been resurrected since. It's under the sands uh, to this day, uh, except for what archeologists are digging up, but uh, it, uh, it's never recovered. And uh, there were, and if you read uh, Ezekiel, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there are prophecies against Tyre and Sidon and prophecies against uh, uh, Edom and so forth. And all of these, there is an end prophesied to them. An end that has come and gone without it being the end of the world. The, uh, the word that is used here for end, the end of all things is near, is the word telos, which is sometimes uh, translated uh, in other parts of the New Testament as uh, fulfillment. And Jesus refers also uh, to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 as the fulfillment of all that is written in the Olivet Discourse, as it's recorded in Luke's Gospel, in Luke 21, uh, we read these words, When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city get out, and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. A time of punishment in fulfillment of all that is written. And so there is a fulfillment that comes on Jerusalem, a punishment which is a fulfillment of all that is written. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, the end or the fulfillment of all things is near. He's talking about what Jesus is talking about, namely the destruction of Jerusalem. Now why would that still be called an end or a, the fulfillment of all things? Well, the destruction of, of the temple was a climactic and cataclysmic end of, of Judaism. For the Jews, it was the end of the world as they knew it. And things have never been the same for them since. You know that Jewish life in the Old Testament revolved all around the tabernacle and the, and the temple. All the ceremonies of the temple, all the sacrifices, all the, uh, the annual feast days, everything had to do with the temple, the temple, the temple. There have been no animal sacrifices offered by Jews since AD 70. They haven't been able to do it because there's been no temple. Their life is completely different. And we know that uh, there is now no blessing in being a Jew except a Jew become a Christian. If a, if a Jewish person of Jewish descent wants, wants to be blessed of God, they must embrace Jesus Christ by faith. Uh, even if there is a, a mass conversion of Jews uh, before the parousia of the Lord, it will not be apart from coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Their religion doesn't, doesn't work anymore. They, they, uh, their synagogues are described in the New Testament as synagogues of Satan not as uh, legitimate places of worship for God. There was a transition time of 40 years of testing from the time of uh, Christ's uh, crucifixion till the, or his ascension to the time of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. There was a time of testing, and that time was 40 years. And during that transition time, uh, there was... Uh, kind of uh, Christians could still go to the temple and... and uh, uh, Christians could still go to the synagogue, and Paul went to the synagogue to preach the gospel until he got kicked out and so forth, and uh, Christians uh, could still, uh, of Jewish background, could still uh, do some of the things that were involved in the temple, but with the AD 70 and the destruction of the temple, all that way of life came to an end. And now all the promises uh, for the Old Testament, uh, for the kingdom, and uh, for uh, God's uh, people, are fulfilled in the church. Anyone who is in Christ is an heir to the promises of given to Abraham. Uh, those who are not in Christ are not heirs of the promises given to Abraham. It is you and I who believe in Christ who are the true descendants and true heirs of Abraham. Judaism is over as a religion. The end, the fulfillment of all things Jewish was, has come to an end. Paul tells us that uh, there was a kind of division of labor between Paul and Peter. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles and Peter is the apostle to the, to the Jews and writing to the Jews, he says the end, the, the Jewish Christians, the end is near. 
And so uh, uh, that is what uh, he's talking about. And he was right. He wrote this before AD 70, and within a few years of writing this, the end came. The prophecy of Jesus is fulfilled. I don't know if you know the name Bertrand Russell. He's the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, I think, in 1954, thereabouts. Uh, he was a great philosopher, a playwright, uh, and a, a very well-renowned atheist. And he wrote a booklet one time, Why I Am Not a Christian. And he came to the Olivet Discourse, and he saw these prophecies of what's going to happen in this generation. And he thought that meant the end of the world, the, the consuming of the whole earth with fire, which we read about in Second Peter, uh, but uh, he thought that that's what Jesus was talking about, and he said, Jesus was wrong, it hasn't happened. And Moses tells us that if a prophet claims that something is going to happen and it doesn't happen, he's a false prophet. And so Bertrand Russell says, I don't believe in Jesus because by the Bible's own definition, he's a false prophet. Well, you and I have to understand that Jesus is not a false prophet. He said something terrible, climactic, and, and destructive was going to happen in that generation. And the apostles also taught the same thing, and it did happen. It happened. The end came for Judaism. Well, if that's the case, then does that mean that uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 has no significance for our lives? that this was for that generation and we can ignore this scripture because it doesn't, uh, it doesn't pertain to us? Uh, well, no. Uh, this is uh, a, a prophecy that has been fulfilled that was given in conjunction with another prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled. The second half of the, of the Olivet Discourse uh, concerns the parousia. And that prophecy hasn't been fulfilled yet. Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 3, the first passage I read to you, hasn't been fulfilled yet. But if the first part of the prophecy has been fulfilled, just as Jesus said it would, in that generation, and the signs were seen by the Christians, and they did flee to the hills and get out of the way, then how much more certain is it that the second part of the prophecy will be fulfilled, the part that hasn't been fulfilled yet. You and I ought to be uh, more convinced of the certainty of the parousia, the second coming, the appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, based on the fact that the first part of the prophecy has already been fulfilled. And since the second part hasn't been fulfilled, but it will be fulfilled as surely as the first part was, has been fulfilled, then we ought to take heed to the admonitions that are given in conjunction with these prophecies. It's interesting that with regard to both prophecies, the prophecy of the thing that happened in, the in that generation, the end of Judaism, the destruction of the temple, the uh, destruction of that generation that had rejected the Christ and rejected, uh, and therefore were also uh, held accountable for rejecting all the prophets that spoke by the Spirit of Christ. If uh, uh, Peter uh, gives uh, certain admonitions saying, this is how you ought to prepare for that event. And in Second Peter, when he's talking about the unfulfilled portion, the, the uh, parousia, 
it's almost like he's repeating the same kind of admonitions. Whenever something is coming that constitutes a judgment, uh, you get ready for it in the same way. So the admonitions, uh, for example, that are found in, uh, in uh, 1 Peter, that, uh, he, where he says, the end of all things is near, therefore be clear-minded, be self-controlled, pray, love each other deeply, uh, offer hospitality, use your spiritual gifts to serve others, uh, uh, strengthen one another, and so forth. Second Peter, he, he just says not the exact same things, but the same general th sort of things. Uh, what manner of people ought we to be in light of all these things? Well, we ought to live holy lives. Uh, that we ought not to uh, uh, participate in the drunkenness and uh, uh, the carousing and all that sort of stuff that's going on in the world, but live separate uh, lives from this, uh, live holy and upright lives, uh, loving one another as uh, Christ has loved us. Uh, the admonitions of, uh, for holy living have to do are the way that we prepare. It, it's not surprising that, uh, that this would be the case. What happened in AD 70 was punishment on a people who had rejected Christ. The punishment was restricted to those people who had been in the covenant and uh, who were God's covenant people and who rejected the covenant by rejecting Christ. Uh, God's judgment fell on them. But now the, uh, the gospel has gone out to the ends of the earth. And we're told in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians that what happened to Jerusalem, something like that is destined for everyone now who rejects the gospel. For all those who have not believed the gospel, destruction is coming. As judgment fell on one people, because they rejected Christ, so judgment will fall on all people for rejecting Christ by rejecting the gospel when Christ comes again. And uh, in anticipation of his coming, we can expect that uh, there will be hard times, uh, persecution of Christians, uh, where we need one another, and therefore it's important that we learn to love one another, that we forgive one another, that we offer hospitality to one another, that we use our gifts for building each other up, uh, because uh, as uh, the world turns against us more and more, we will see how much we need each other. And if we're not doing it now, then uh, it will be very hard to institute that once uh, uh, harder times come upon us. Uh, the end of all things is near, says Peter, and it was near, and it did come. And the parousia of our Lord, what about that promise? Is God slow about that promise? No, he's not slow. He just doesn't count time the way we count time. He's being patient. He wants each one of you and a great many other people to be sure to come to repentance before that time. And he wants the church of Jesus Christ to be ready and to be ready also for hard times that may precede his coming because we don't know when it's going to be. It could be any time. Like the thief that comes in the night, he doesn't send you an email saying, I'm breaking into your house tonight. He doesn't uh, leave a calling card when he cases the joint saying, uh, be prepared on this night. No, uh, we don't know when the thief is going to break in and steal and uh, Therefore, we always have to be vigilant. We always have to be ready. 
That's the, uh, the point of the parables beginning at the second half of Matthew 24, those three parables that speak about a long time. All of them are about being busy, doing the work you're supposed to do so that when Christ comes, he finds you at your task. The first part of Matthew 24 was all about seeing the signs to escape the judgment. But there's no escaping the parousia. It's going to happen to everybody and we all need to be ready and we all need to be doing the work that God has given us to do. Christ has come into this world once. He has come and offered his life in payment of sin. His death was an atoning sacrifice to pay for the guilt of your sin and my sin so that we might be forgiven. And it was done so that when the judgment comes, we might escape. Jesus gave signs to that generation of Christians so that they might escape. Now we escape not by seeing signs. We escape the judgment by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we will be covered by his blood. Then instead of being afraid at his coming, we will welcome him with open arms. For he will know, we know that he will say to you on that day, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. What a great day that will be when the world is cleansed and made new, when his kingdom fills the earth the way that uh, rock not cut by human hands that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream that grew to be a mountain that filled the whole earth. So Christ's kingdom will fill the whole earth. Heaven will come down. The heavenly city, the new Jerusalem came down out of heaven and God will make his dwelling with us on earth. Think of that. We think uh, it's uh, too often we don't think enough about that. We think only when I die, I go to be with him. But that's only temporary. The real future, the eternal future, is not us going to be with him, but he coming down to be with us and living on the earth with us so that we don't need the sun anymore for its light by day or the moon by night. His glory will be our light continually because God will come and dwell with us on the earth. It's, it blows the mind to think about how, how glorious that will be, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of ever-increasing glory. That's worth waiting for. That's worth saying no to sin for. That's worth devoting ourselves to holy living so that when he appears, when his parousia happens, we will be ready because we will be busy doing the work that he has given us to do. We will be loving one another as he has loved us. We will be forgiving one another as he has forgiven us. We'll be using our gifts to build each other up, doing the work of church, doing the work of mission, claiming the good news so that more and more we'll be ready when he comes again. Christ prophesied one important prophecy has been fulfilled, which underscores the certainty that the second prophecy also will be fulfilled. May God give us grace to believe and obey. Amen. Let us respond to God's word by singing selection number 133, Psalm 133, stanzas 1 and 2.
Let us unite our hearts.